ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Marcy Levy. Marcella Detroit, two names, a bit like me, Steve Blame and Stephen James. And I was told by a therapist that when you develop a new name, you have a different personality. So in effect, you have two personalities. So who am I talking to today? <laughs> Actually, it's more than two personalities, Steve. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said to my therapist. Well... You know, it depends on what we're talking about, I guess. <laughs> okay, we come to that later. Um, I want to talk about your childhood and the music that you were surrounded by that mm -hmm. your family played. Mm. Well, my parents always had the radio on. You know, I grew up in Detroit, so there was all, always like, um, like a local pop station that my parents loved, all Motown stuff. That was always going on in the background. My dad played ukulele, so he would walk around the house like after he'd get home from work and he'd start playing these country songs, like a detour, there's a muddy road ahead. And But he, he loved pop music and he loved the Beatles and so did my mother. Um, he, he just loved when new Beatles songs came out. He would just be amazed at the wonder of of their songs and the journeys they would take you on, like Penny Lang was one of his favorites. So there was always a radio on in our house or in the car. And of course I bought, you know, all the records, the 45s, Beach Boys, Leslie Gore. I mean, you know, when I had my my little turntable and I had my bought my 45s. Um, when did you and, realize you had a voice? Um well, my father and I used to sing in the car together. We used to sing harmonies together when I was really young. But when I started, actually, when I started school, when I was five, um, I was always involved in singing. I was involved in, uh, you know, duos, trios, quartets, quintets, uh, you know, school plays, school shows. And I started playing an instrument pretty young when I was like seven. Um, so yeah, I, I think it was around, you know, as soon as I started school and as soon as I could sing and, you know, sing with a chorus and a bunch of people, it was so much fun to me. Were you naturally creative, would you say then? Yeah, yeah, I think I was. My mother saved some of the, the uh, poetry I created and um, there was one thing, um, it was about 
it was about Thanksgiving and, and the way, but the way that I, I wrote it was very creative. Um, so yeah, I think I've always had that um, ability and, and desire to be creative, but it became more intense and more of a necessity and a way of life for me when my parents decided that we should move to this all Jewish neighborhood because we were the only Jewish, there was only one other Jewish family where, where we were living in uh, Western, Southwestern Detroit. And my parents thought that um, we should move and I, we should be with more Jewish people. I, I don't know, maybe they thought I would grow up and marry a nice Jewish boy. <laughs> like that was never gonna happen. Um, not because of any kind of prejudice towards Jewish or whatever, or it was just because I, I was very independent and I wouldn't be told what to do as a child and a teenager, especially. Were you rebellious then? Oh, God, yeah, I was very rebellious. I mean, so what, what I was, form did that take? Well, whatever my parents told me not to do, I would do. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. Okay, I'm gonna do that. Don't take drugs. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna take drugs. Um, don't, you know, watch out for, you know, for men and, and what they might do. And, Blah, blah, blah. Just everything you can think of. I, I just kind of, you know, went against the grain and did my own thing. I was, I was a hippie, you know. I loved that whole movement, the peace and love, which incorporated music as well and, and emotions. And yeah, I was really into that. I mean, I know you say that your father was uh, played an instrument. He was creative in that sense. But did yeah. they value creativity? You know, if you go, if you're like going into a career or you're looking at it like that, it's a very different thing, isn't it? Than just playing a few songs at home. So how did they value creativity or did they at all? Well, oh yeah, absolutely. My father, my father used to take me to go see, um, to concerts. He took me, because my first instrument was violin. He took me to go see Isaac Stern um, play in the Detroit area. And then when the Beatles came along, they allowed me to go see the Beatles. Um, he was also an artist before he became a, a tool and die maker. He was, he was a really intelligent man. Um, so he had to use calculus and, and, you know, whatever to do his job, but, but he was also very creative, but decided to give that up because he had to support a family, a, a young family. Um, but he was very, very supportive of me. And so was my mother. But I remember one day I was sitting there, you know, talking to my dad about, you know, my aspirations. And uh, he said, you know, your chances of making it are a million to one. And I just looked at him and I said, watch me. Yeah, if there's ever a point where you want to, <laughs> where you want to prove something, when your parents yeah. say that. Um, yeah. So, you said there was an urgency created within you when they decided to move to a different area. What right. was that urgency and what did you do? Well, basically I didn't, I didn't want to move. My parents thought it would be a good idea and, and I was really angry about it. And in fact, I developed this illness that didn't even allow me to go to school for a month. The, it baffled the doctors. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Nobody could figure out what was wrong. I was just so angry and despondent, really. I think maybe I was depressed as well. 
um, because I was so happy where I was, you know, I was accepted. So we moved to this other area and, uh, and I was shunned, I was mocked, I was made fun of, I was the outcast. And so then I started leaning more into my music. I started writing songs. Um, and, and that was really like, music was my best friend. My guitar was my best friend. My father was, in, was very supportive too in that time. He bought me an electric guitar for the first time. He bought me an acoustic guitar, a 12 string before that. But he was very supportive of my music and, and uh, knew how much it meant to me. And he could see that I was you know, really into it and I had a natural talent toward it. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? There's so many artists that have this outsider or, you know, being, feeling different at an early age in there. I mean, look at Bowie. I mean, outside <laughs> says everything really. Um, and um, this sort of provides in a sense, a drive for many of these artists. Do you think that is in a sense where your drive, apart from the talent, because you obviously need talent to be successful, but drive is a big thing about being successful as well. Do you think it came from that? I absolutely do. I think maybe if we if we hadn't moved and I hadn't, you know, turned to my music to comfort me and and to give me an outlet, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, maybe I would have been happier. I was I was a pretty happy kid um, and very very. Uh, um, What's the word I'm thinking of? Aside from, I was very well accepted in the neighborhood where we were, and I was so unhappy about moving. So my movie, my my music gave me that comfort, you know, the comfort that I needed. Um, and yeah, that I think that's what really propelled me through it and and to it. Apart from music, there's sometimes an artist will. For example, when I was a teenager, Bowie was my hero. And uh, as someone who was gay and didn't really know it at that period, Bowie provided this world that I wanted to go to rather than the world of my parents. He was my freedom. Do you see what I mean? So I wanted to be in his world and he yeah. represented that. Was there an artist that you listened to that represented the world in which you wanted to be? I don't just mean music, but the world in which you wanted to to, to to expand and to flourish and blossom. There were many artists that gave that to me, um, aside from the Beatles, the Doors, you know, um, the Mothers of Invention, Joni Mitchell, um, and, you know, Bowie. I was in a band in Detroit, and, and when we started getting more popular, we actually opened for Bowie, and I wore out hunky-dory my boyfriend and I would just listen to that on repeat and I you know obviously um I'd seen him many times and then to open for him was a thrill but yeah he did provide that world where you felt like oh there are other people that feel the same way and he provided that that outlet you know for for the outcasts so to speak I mean I come to that in a minute but when did music come to be a choice instead of just something that you were retreating into, when did that actually become an active participation? You mean when I decided to make it a job? Yeah. Right. Um, well, I made a conscious decision about it. Uh, I had been in some bands in the Detroit area, but I, I was, 
I was, I just come out of a very abusive, physically abusive relationship. And um, I remember one day I was in this park in Detroit playing my guitar. And I remember looking up at the sky and thinking, this feels so good when I play. I just feel, it feels so natural to me. I looked up at the sky and I said out loud, this is what I'm gonna do with the rest of my life. And at that moment, that is when I decided to do something about it. So I put my name on this local radio station that would, would have these want ads every, every, I don't know, I guess it was every Friday. Um, and you could put anything up there you wanted. And, and I said, girl singer looking for blues band. <laughs> and that's how I joined my first band. Um, yeah, and that was it. And I never stopped. I mean, Julia, you mentioned the band Julia, which was that's, the, yeah. yeah, that band. And uh, you also, you know, also mentioned Bowie and that you played as support for Bowie and that you'd also seen him in concert. Can you tell me, what, in terms of playing as a support for Bowie, how was that? And did you get an opportunity to meet him at all? Well, first of all, it was an honor and it was with Julia that I ended up, um, that we ended up opening for Bowie. Um, it was a thrill because it was in one of the most iconic theaters in Detroit called the Fisher Theater. Uh, it looked like an opera house, really. Uh, you know, the gilded, you know, um, very ornate, beautiful chandeliers. And I had only been there maybe once or twice in my little life to see concerts. Um, so to play there and, and to see Bowie there and to be opening for him was beyond astounding for all of us. We were so honored and thrilled. Unfortunately, I didn't, we didn't, none of us got to meet him because as soon as we came off stage, they said, we have to clear the backstage area. Nobody's allowed back here while he's preparing. And so, you know, me, the, the rebellious one, um, <laughs> I said, oh, I have to go back. I left my bag back there. So I need to go backstage and get it out of the dressing room. So I, I went back, they, they allowed me in. And as I walked past his dressing room, I could see him in there in the mirror, you know, preparing, getting ready. And I was just like, ah, it was the coolest thing. But yeah, it, it was it was wonderful on so many levels. For us, for Julia, the, the lead guitarist, um, his name was Bill Mueller, also known as um, Blue Miller, um, who became a really highly lauded um, producer, produced India Ari's breakout album and, and was her um, musical director for many years. Um, we got to, we ended up writing songs and we did a few of those songs for that show. And it was wonderful to hear that. But then, you know, to see Bowie and all of us were just watching in awe. I know that you went to, you, you snuck into lots of concerts when you were young and you'd been to see lots of acts in any case. And then seeing Bowie on stage, what did you, what were you able to glean from different artists in terms of um, performance, in terms of image, and of course, in terms of the use of the voice? Mm. I have never seen a better performer, I don't think, than Bowie. There's only been a few other performers that I've seen that just, he could just stand there and be so commanding, no matter what he does. He didn't really, 
I mean, of course, he gyrated around sometimes, but then he could just stand there and deliver a song and you were completely mesmerized right from the beginning. Um, his, his complete commitment to what he did and what he, what he was doing as an artist was quite astounding. Um, there were only a few other people I could say that did that, maybe um, Leonard Cohen and the Beatles. I saw Bob Marley once who, who blew me away. I saw the, the Wailers and uh, he was one of the best performers I've ever seen. Also just that, that commitment um, and that connection to, to the music, to what they were doing that is so important and just transports you to another place. You go on a journey with them. Well, yeah, you go on a journey with them, but I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm jumping now completely, but, but in terms of when I've seen uh, you perform, there's, mm. there is a hundred percent commitment in your performance. So you have obviously taken things from, from other people and, and, and seen that that works for them and that's what you need to do. Would you say that's true? Um, of course, yeah. I think, you know, some singers might not agree with me, but singing is, is, is like acting. You're telling a story, but you have three minutes or however long the song is to do it. You have to tell a story and you have to convey, because songs are all about emotion. They capture a moment in time when the, the person who wrote the song is trying to convey, whether it be about love, injustice, whatever it's about, you have to connect to it. If you don't connect to it, you're like this conduit through which the message is delivered. And if it's not believable, if you don't believe it, then no one else is gonna believe it. So what's the point? And you have to really be vulnerable, which you know, in my earlier days, I found that very difficult to be vulnerable. Um, what, why? I didn't really know how to do it. Um, it scared me just to show people that, that you really didn't really know what you were doing, but you were so lost in the emotion <laughs> that anything could happen. You know, um, I guess maybe it's about control and feeling like you would lose control. Uh, but I remember I studied acting here in LA because I wanted to be able to connect more with my with what I was singing. And I remember working with my teacher, who was a, a great uh, coach named Milton Katselis. Um, and he, I he was coaching me through this song, and and I I started crying. I said, Yeah, but what if I what if I cry? What if I can't sing because I'm crying? He's like, Then you get a freaking standing ovation. I'm like, Oh. Okay, I get it. It's <laughs> brilliant. Um, after um, supporting Bowie, um, Bob Seger signed you up to tour, or the, yeah. Julia up to tour with the with him. What was that experience like, and what did you learn in that experience, creatively and musically? Oh gosh. Um, well. That was a great experience because, you know, Bob was, had already had some, some hits in the country. And, um, and he asked our band to audition because he was looking for a new band. So he hired us all. And 
after a few months, he hired, he fired the rhythm section, the, the drummer and the, the bass player. And he kept myself and Bill Mueller um, and hired these hotshot um, players from Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was like this really cool musical hotspot that not a lot of people knew about, but Leon Russell was from there. He was part of the Wrecking Crew. Um, there were other incredible musicians there, like Carl Radel from Derek and the Dominoes. And anyway, we toured the country and then I really got to understand, okay, this is what it's like to tour. It was the first time I was on a plane, on a jet. Whereas when I was a kid, my parents would take me to the airport. We'd sit there and watch planes take off for hours. We were so fascinated with it. So here I was on a plane for the first time and touring around the country and, and doing all these festivals. And, you know, Bob was such a great performer. Um, really, he was also very committed to what he was doing, very devoted and committed. So I learned about that, um, you know, even more by working with him and what it took to actually have the, have the, you know, the wherewithal, you know, to do that. And it was difficult touring. I mean, we, it was, there was no luxury about it. We were in what you call a state wagons. And, and then it was, then we graduated to Winnebago's, um, you know, like, you know, caravans and things, but only once did a few times we took uh, a plane to get to, you know, locations that were too far to drive to. Um, How old were you back then at that time? Uh, when I first joined his band, I was 19. Oh, wow. So was that like joining a new family to a certain extent? Because, yeah. you, you know, you speak about it in... in in those terms and it also sounds that it was very um collaborative and i don't just mean in terms of the performance but in terms of the exchange yeah absolutely um and then when the guys from tulsa joined i jamie oldacre on drums and dick sims who played keyboards he also he kicked bass um with his feet um he was fantastic so we became very good friends and we were like family. Um, Bob hired this uh, other singer named Sean Murphy and her and I were, we would, we would get to do our own song during the show. And it was really funny because one night we did, we did this song by Lynn Collins, who was a um, James Brown protege called Think, not to be confused with the Aretha Franklin Think. But we performed this, this uh, song one night and the crowd went crazy. We got standing ovations. And, and after the show, we went back to the hotel and Bob got us in the hallway. He said, you guys are fired. And we're like, I learned a lesson there also. Well, just not a lesson, but what could possibly happen uh, if you're too good? And it's not necessarily a good lesson, but he's, you know, if you're too good and you outshine someone, um, you get fired. People get jealous. There's a lot of egos involved in this business. So he fired us and we just looked at each other like, wow, okay, be good, but don't be too good. Anyway, but the next morning he hired us back. 
<laughs> he realized the error of his ways and, and said, okay, come on, you know, come on, you, you know, it's, it's okay. But I can't say that's not something that I've been aware of for a lot of my career about being too good or, you know, getting too much attention and people getting jealous. And I've experienced as well, you know, watching other people do that. And I, I know what it feels like when shit, you know, I didn't perform as good as I wanted to uh, for that particular song. So it just makes you dig in deeper and realize what you need to do. Not, I, well, I was gonna say not to be competitive, but hey, I'm a very competitive person. I'm not gonna lie about it. I think anybody who's in the industry, who's in the arts is competitive or why would you do it other than for self-fulfillment, which you do on a level as well, but it's also very competitive. So, you, don't, you don't go into a band to be a backing singer, do you? You, you know, in the long term, you go in to be, you go in to develop your own career to a certain well, extent. Yeah, as well. exactly. Yeah, thank you. I, I didn't, I didn't start out to be a backing singer, although that I saw that as a way in. Like when I was, when I would see Leon Russell perform and see his background singers, I was like, oh my god, I just love this. I, this is what I want to do, and so I ended up working with him <clears throat> after Seeger. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. When did Eric Clapton come into your life? Okay, well, as far as the Julia and us backing up Seeger, the guys from Tulsa um, invited me to move to Tulsa. I was like, I've, I've done a lot out of Detroit. What, what else can I do here? And I knew I was crazy about Leon Russell, and I wanted to meet him and possibly work with him. And... Uh, I was actually had like a major crush on him. And, and so when I moved to Tulsa and I was in the band with those guys and some other great, fantastic musicians in Tulsa, um, Carl Radel from Derek and the Domino is a bass player and he worked with George Harrison and like loads of other people. Um, he was also part of the Wrecking Crew. He would come and see us play and after several months, he got a call from Eric who, who said, um, hey, I want to go back out on the road. Because he was at a very low point, you know, with his depression, his own demons. And, oh, I want to get back on the road. I need to get back out there. So Carl, he said, I'm looking for a band. So Carl said, come to Tulsa and check these guys out. So he came to check us out. He came to this famous uh venue called Kane's Ballroom where we were playing and he sat in with us and and right after that he wanted to hire us all but I had already committed to working with Leon um and uh I was like there's no way I'm not going to work with Leon Russell because I used to have pictures of him all over my bedroom walls and his records and I told my mother I'm gonna sing with him one day and she was like oh, yeah that's nice honey okay so there was no way I was not going to do that. Um, I think my mistake was being in a relationship, getting involved with him. Um, but I, I thought I was in love with him. You know, he was, he had so much charisma. Oh, and, but as a musician, it was just phenomenal, just truly phenomenal. Anyway, I digressed a bit. So 
I went off and toured with Leon and my friends, Jamie and Dick and Carl went off to tour with Eric and they did 461 Ocean Boulevard. And whenever I had time off, I would go join them and watch them perform. Um, I went to St. Louis to see them perform and a few other cities. And so after my stint with Leon was over and my relationship, that was about nine and a half months later, um, they called my friends, Jamie and Dick called and said, hey, you should come down to Jamaica. We're doing, we're starting another album. Um, why don't you come down here? We'll fly you down. And, and so, so I went down and I ended up singing on about, I don't know, like several, six or seven songs on the album. Um, there's one in every crowd. And the next thing I know, Eric, Eric said to me, hey, Mousy, would you like to be in the band? And I'm like, yeah, tour the world with you. First of all, I saw Cream in Detroit when they came and um, they were at a place called the Grandy Ballroom. They were fantastic. And I loved Eric. I thought he was great. I loved his, you know, his solo foray that um, Delaney Bramlett produced. I loved After Midnight and all those songs. So I, I was completely honored and thrilled to be working with him and with my friends. So that's how that started. So how did the recording of Lay Down Sally come about? <laughs> and how did you, you know, be involved in that? Because there's a big jump in a sense, isn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I had always been writing since I was 12. I've been writing songs. But then it became more serious when I, you know, when I joined Eric's band, um, I, I got an opportunity to, for my songs to really be heard. And on the second album, There's No Reason to Cry, Eric and I wrote a uh, song, Innocent Times, together. And there was another song called Hungry that Dick and I, Dick Sims and I wrote that, that was on one of the albums as well. And then in 77, when we were in England and we were recording what would become the Slow Hand album, one day we're in the studio, we're at Olympic, which is this iconic studio in Barnes in London and uh, where everybody has worked from Led Zeppelin to Stone to you name it. Um, Eric says to me, like in those days, you didn't really come to the studio with lots of ideas. You would just go in the studio and hope you came up with something. But sometimes Eric would come in with the ideas. Oh, I've got this idea. He would just start playing something and we'd all just join in. So he said, Marcy, I've got this idea. I want to write a song called Lay Down Sally. So I was like, I, I'm always intrigued by titles. Uh, they really motivate me and I find them really interesting and challenging. So I was like, Lay Down Sally, okay. Well, what could that be about? Uh, well, obviously to me, it was like a guy trying to talk a girl into, hey, why don't you just lay down here? We'll talk for a while. So um, I came up with the idea initially. I just grabbed a guitar. We were very into uh, Little Feet and Bo Diddley. So I just started playing um, more of a kind of on the guitar. And, um, and I, I don't know where, you know, sometimes these melodies, you just kind of pull them out of the air, out of the ether. I heard Willie Nelson say that once and I was like, yes, I totally get that. But all of a sudden the the title will inspire a melody. And I just started singing that title, you know, that lay down sand. And we kept going on from there. And we wrote, the three of us, uh, George, Terry, Eric, and I, we wrote the chorus. 
in that little feet groove. Um, but then we got to the verses and nothing sounded right. We're trying to go to a minor chord. No, that didn't work. I mean, we worked on it for hours, maybe five, six hours. The keyboard player, Dick, got really bored. He went back to the hotel. Um, so we're just still hanging out there. And all of a sudden, Eric starts playing, you know, the dick, dick, dig, 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 and, and Glenn Jones, who's producing it, goes, oh, that, this sounds great. This sounds great. Okay, let's record it. So all of a sudden, we have a whole song recorded. Like I said, the keyboard player left. So I, I got behind the Wurlitzer, and I, I just play. If you listen, it's like a really simplistic piano part because I'm no I don't really know how to play piano that well even though I love it but um we put the track down and and we had the chorus because we already we already wrote that and Eric said to me go back to the hotel tonight and write the rest of the song so I had an idea I knew what the I knew what the song was about it was about you know that premise and I just tried to put myself in that position <laughs> that's not a pun really but um, try to put myself in that position of that happening. And so I came back with it the next day and um, we recorded it. And I mean, we had no idea that it would be this major hit like six to eight months later when the manager kept coming in, you know, seeing us on tour going, oh, later on Sally just entered the charts at number 30 something. We're like, really? Wow, okay. And as it progressed and it finally went to number four and the single went gold, it was really, really incredible. How does a music musician's mind work? Because it does seem like, <laughs> no, but it does seem like it's different uh, yeah. in some way that, and I don't know, is it because you can hear things that you can put together and it works differently? I don't know. I really don't know how to describe it myself, but I do feel there must be must be some some difference. Yeah, I, I really don't know because I'm not like a neuroscientist or whatever. But um, or are me, you constantly aware of sounds? Are you constantly aware of things around you in terms yes. of sound? Absolutely. Um, and that's probably why I'm going deaf because um, I've had a lot of sound at incredible levels in my life. But no, I'm always, my ear is always tuned into sound. Like somebody could be talking. If there's some music playing in the background, my ear just goes there. It, my ear and my attention just goes there. And there's a name for that. I remember seeing Sting uh, doing an interview saying, there is a name for that when you get distracted by any conversation, if there's music playing, especially if it's good music, that you could be, you know, la, 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 that's what it sounds like. That's what you're doing to me. All I'm doing is, oh, I want to hear that. I don't really know how, how it works, but it's just something that becomes um, such a part of you and a part of your DNA that you're, you're so attracted to it. And you're always creating, I write songs in my dreams. And I used to actually wake up and record them. And some of them would be terrible, but others would be like, wow, I can't believe I came up with this. And, and some, sometimes you'll develop them and you'll go, oh, maybe it's not as good as I thought. But other times it's just like, wow, this is incredible how the subconscious works. Like if, if somebody, it's, it's a, a mission though, you know, to write a song, somebody will give you an idea or a challenge and, You'll have to come up with it. And your brain 
if you allow it and let it do its thing, it, it just starts creating this kind of template for lack of a better word. And then you start filling it in from how you want it to go, you know, what you want to say. Um, it's kind of like a formula, but I hate when things are too formulaic. So it's gotta have, for me, everything I write has to have inspiration behind it. When I was younger, I used to just kind of, oh yeah, I can write a song about anything or, you know, it, it doesn't really have to mean anything to me, but that really changed a lot when, after I joined Shakespeare's sister, um, everything had a lot more meaning, you know, and really like giving a, a big piece of who you were or who I was and who I am to what I'm writing about as an artist. So I'm always thinking about that, you know, what I wanna say in that small amount of time I have to say it. And have I said it enough? Have I expressed it enough um, that I'm satisfied? You know, it's like a painting. Can it ever be finished? Maybe. Sometimes it feels complete. Other times it's like, oh, I wish I would have pushed a bit more, you know? I think it's interesting that you say dreams as well, that, you know, that it's, I'm a screenwriter today. And if I have a problem in a script, I go to bed with it. <laughs> and right. I wake up and I've solved the problem. And I don't know how it happens, but it is the subconscious and it works. Yeah, it does. Um, and it's a fantastic yeah. method, isn't it? It's really great. It's incredible if you just, you know, leave it to, to your brain to help you sort it out. It will. Now, you've worked with so many more artists, and particularly, I think, when you're in L.A. Um, and, um, for example, Alice Cooper. Uh, mm -hmm was one on a completely nuts track, really, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> yeah. What was that about? <laughs> well, you know what? Um, I actually didn't know what it was about. All I knew <laughs> what it was about was that I got a call from David Foster, you know, the incredible producer who's worked with everybody you can think of. And actually he produced my first album when I moved to LA right after I left Eric's band, he, there was an attempt of him by him to produce an album of me, which was rejected by the label, unfortunately. It was a little too slick, but David ended up, you know, having me do loads of session work for him. He would call me to sing with Daryl Hall and Bill Champlin and, and tons of great artists. So one day he called me to, uh, to do something with Alice. Alice, used to play around the Detroit area all the time. So as a kid, I would go see his concert. So to be asked to sing a duet with him was really thrilling. When I heard the song, I was like, oh my God, what is this? It's about two people in, a, in an insane asylum plotting or one of them ends up killing someone. And my character is called Millie and Billy. And my character says, Oh, Billy, after he's, you know, murdered somebody. I actually found out that I read a very interesting article, if anyone gets a chance to read it. Um, I, I saw it on Facebook and I can't tell you what magazine it was in, but if you Google a search for um, Eric's, not Eric's, um, Alice's album from the inside, it's when he was trying to fight his drug addiction. 
and he went into to this institution to get over it and all and he met all these really crazy people and they were telling him stories so he used that to write this album it's just phenomenal i was so he's so so creative in the way he uses his life and and people he meets and but it's not only him telling a story about other people, he invests himself into it. So that's what that song is about. It was, he was such a down to earth guy in between takes, him and David were talking about golfing and it was kind of surprising to hear, but yeah, he's just really, really cool guy. How did you deal with the disappointment of your own first solo album? Oh, you know, trying to be an artist, and, and being in the music business is full of a lot of, you can call them disappointments or you can call them learning experiences. You know, um, of course I was devastated. Um, I was signed to Epic Records and, and when I was signed, the, the head of the company, the president seemed to really like it. And I had people really gunning for me here in LA, but the New York side of the company didn't like it. And then the, the person who signed me left the company. So there's always that to deal with as an artist. Um, I was devastated. I got a chance to open for John Kruger Mellencamp, but, but uh, the label wouldn't let me. Um, they said it was too much money, you know, touring is expensive. So that was another blow, you know, I could have had an opportunity to tour and and establish myself as an, a solo artist. But I don't know, I guess it wasn't meant to happen. So when did you actually meet Siobhan Faye, who was uh, in Bananarama, of course? Right. Um, well, after I, I joined Eric Clapton's band the second time because I wrote a song with uh, a writing partner of mine, Richard Feldman, who's from Tulsa. And, um, called Tang of the Love and we got it to Eric and he loved it and I was asked to fly down to Montserrat and be in his band and toured with him and went went to Live Aid, did Live Aid and toured all over the world with him again for a year. But then I realized, you know, whether it was a good or a bad decision, you know, you can look back on a hindsight, it's always 2020 and, but I had aspirations. I really wanted to do my own thing. And I was doing interviews, but all the interviews, all the journalists were asking me about Eric and Eric's women and Eric's drug abuse and you know alcohol abuse. And I just thought, you know, you could keep doing this and it, you know, quite lucrative and, and it's, you know, it's it's fun and you're touring the world and you're making a good living but but what do you really want to do you know do you want to because at that point I was in my early 30s and I'm like you know I really if I want to do something on my own I really have to make this happen so after a year I um I just realized that I I needed to quit and and focus more on myself and it was a hard decision um I know some people weren't happy with me when I did that, but it's what I felt I had to do for myself as an artist. I, I took myself seriously. Um, so I left, came back to LA. I was doing a lot of session work. Um, I toured with uh, George Duke, who, you know, I, I ended up, he was 
a brilliant musician and I did some work with him um, and he produced a lot of great records. And then my friend Richard Feldman, who I mentioned just previously, who wrote uh, Promises as well for Clapton. Um, and I helped him write a little bit of that too. Um, he noticed he was getting some new neighbors one day and he went over to introduce himself and he was like, it's Dave Stewart and his wife, Siobhan Fahey. Um, so he, uh, he called me and said, hey, hey these, Dave Stewart and Siobhan Fahey just moved in across the street from me. I'm like, wow, that's, that's cool. And Richard had a studio in his house. You know, it was, it was a good little home studio. Um, and um, he invited Siobhan over there to work with him. She was pregnant at the time with, with their first child. And, and so he invited me over to meet them and to meet her. And, and he said, you know, you guys, you guys should, uh, you should come and sing and, and write with us and play, you know, whatever. So I ended up doing that for the first album, Sacred Heart. And that's how we met, you know, and that's how it started. At first, I was just, I was like a hired hand, you know, well, sing background I mean, vocals and write and play and whatever. I mean, you were very, from very different areas. I mean, oh, yeah. Siobhan was a pop artist and I don't want to demean what she did because it was great pop, but yeah. you, you know, you come from uh, uh, a much deeper uh, and a more cultured area of, of pop music um, right. and more credible area, you know, there's no doubt about it. So right. um, what really deep down made you want to, I know this is in hindsight again, because obviously I know the story a bit, but, what made you want to work with her? Well, initially we got along really, really well. She was very shy. Um, she had just made a decision to leave Bananarama. Um, and Richard and Dave would say to me, you know, you guys sound really good together. This is so unusual. I don't think either of us were, of us were really sure we wanted to be in a band together, to be quite honest. Um, I was not so sure for reasons that you said, and also, you know, my determination to be this thing on my own. <laughs> um, but I saw, wow, this is so unusual. You know, I'm bringing my sensibilities to it. She's got her sensibilities. And we met in the middle with, with certain things like, um, I, mean, I wasn't, back in the day, I was not into punk at all. Yeah, I was into, rock and roll, soul, R&B, like, and that's where we, but I, I loved T-Rex. We both loved T-Rex. I loved Sly. She loved Sly and the Family Stone. So that's where we met. And then I got to appreciate, you know, where she came from a bit more. And we got to use those influences and together they made something really unusual, really unusual and quite successful in our, the, the last single off of um, Sacred Heart actually did really well in the chart. I think it went to number seven in the UK charts. So then it was like the record company and the management, everybody was saying to me, we want you to be a 50% member of the band. And that made it different for me because it meant that I would have more of a say, I would have more of a voice in it. You know, I would, I would be an equal partner on paper, basically. Um, 
But Siobhan had a vision and she knew where she wanted it to go, you know, musically. But she and I started that second album together in my little home studio, about a half a mile from where I am right now. Um, we recorded everything at my home. We'd get together every day and write. And uh, it was very disciplined, but it was also very spontaneous at the same time. It was um, led by a visual concept in a way, wasn't it? it was, was that well, Siobhan's yeah. concept? We were inspired by a movie that her husband Dave saw and told us about called Catwomen of the Moon. It was a, a B movie made in the 1950s uh, in America. It was really cheesy. It was about these cat women who lived on the moon and they were, you know, beautiful, powerful. Um, and so we kind of, we wanted to buy the rights to the film and superimpose ourselves into the film. And we had all these grand ideas, but the label was like, eh, I don't think so. Um, Cause it was quite, you know, cost prohibitive. Um, so instead we still used the movie for inspiration and we could really relate to it because these women were kind of outcast, but powerful. Um, they, they knew they were really different and they knew all the power they, they possessed. So we used certain scenes from the movie for, the, for our songs. And for Stay, um, there was a scene where the character that I was going to portray had fallen in love with an earthling came to the moon and I was begging him not to go back. And so that's where Stay came from one day on a Sunday at 9.30 in the morning, Dave and Siobhan came over and my husband said, hey, wake up there. Dave and Siobhan are here. And he brought me in a cup of coffee and he, Dave has an idea. And Dave said, you know, Marcy, how you, when we have these parties and you always sing these beautiful ballads, I would, I think we should write something that features you. I'm like, oh, okay. So he had the start of an idea. He had the verse, the very first verse all mapped out and everything. And when I got to the chorus, I just started singing, stay with me, stay with me. And so it went from there. Um, it was such an incredible process and working with Dave was, he was so nurturing. He, I felt like I could do things I didn't even know I could do around him. There's something, I don't want to say magical about him, but he really was so encouraging and inspiring. It was fascinating to be around him. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. The image of Shakespeare's sister was very much two powerful women, and you mentioned that film, and these women on the, on the moon, they didn't have any need for men. And it was there was something it was there was something cool about that film as well. I watched it the other yeah. day. That's oh, you know. But I watched it the other day, and there was something pretty cool about that idea that there were these very strong dynamic of yeah. of women making their own decisions and yeah. doing their own thing. And um, the thing about that single was it was then the biggest single. Did did some form of was there some form of jealousy that came into that from? from Siobhan, do you think? She, do I think? No, I know. And she has said many times, 
In fact, she just posted something about it the other day saying, I thought it was a red herring at the time. She didn't, the minute, well, first of all, the minute we wrote the song, we brought it back to her house where Dave was working with his band Spiritual Cowboys and, and Chris Thomas. And we played it to, you know, our, our work of the day. And when Stay came on, Chris jumped up, hit the table and said, number one smash. And we were like, really? Okay. Um, but Siobhan, I didn't know, but I finally gleaned that um, she really didn't like the song. She didn't think it, and she even said to me, as soon as it was finished and Chris Thomas produced it, um, we tried to rewrite it many times to make it something that she would like, that she felt better about, um, but she was never quite happy with it, but it ended up being the original lyric and used most of my original vocal and our original vocals and my keyboard part. Um, yeah. It was, it was a real surprise that it was so successful and it was the cause of a lot of problems. You know, when it, Siobhan hated it, the minute that the record company said, this is gonna be the next single, she was going on about it to me. We were, on a, we were taking a walk back from a photo shoot and she was like, I don't think it represents Shakespeare's sister. It's not really what this band is about. And hey, I understand. You start something, you have a vision, it's your band, and, and then I'm brought into the mix, and then I'm featured, and I'm taking, you know, this song, this representation is, is taking away from your original vision. But in fact, it wasn't, because it, it was so interesting what the song, sometimes I had trouble, initially I had trouble singing it because it was like the character was had such a dichotomy going on within her. And one minute she's saying, if you leave, you know, I'll, I'll never be the same. And, and then her alter, alter ego comes in and says, you know, and is threatening him, you know, that he's, she's gonna kill him or he's, he's gonna die if he doesn't come back to her. Um, so there's this neediness and then there's this angst. And I found it a little difficult to actually sing at initially, but, yeah, there were there were major problems. In fact, she she wouldn't do the um, radio tour with me when it was announced it was going to be a single. Um, I had, I did it on my own. I just brought the acoustic guitar and I went all across the UK and I I sang it and I couldn't believe that it would catch on, but um, just started climbing up the charts. I think it entered at twenty eight or was it? I don't even know if it was higher and it just kept climbing and then it was there for eight weeks. Yeah, it was uh, the longest uh, single by uh, a female duo. I think that was, at the time, had, had, yeah. hadn't been uh, beaten. And the, um, the, the interesting thing about that, and I've heard it from uh, other um, artists, and it is when you have a career like Siobhan in pop music and then you're moving into a slightly different, more serious area, and you yeah. want to make a statement. And in a sense, I can understand it in that way, that there was a pressure for her to prove something, right. you know, coming from Bananarama, although they were massively successful and loved, they yeah. were so commercial pop, you know, and, yeah. and, and then wanting to sort of express finally what she wanted to express, and right. then maybe feeling 
oh, I can't. And unfortunately, it was, you know, what came out was better, but the ego stopped. It was a bit like the Bob Seger thing, what you said, that he got rid of us and then in the morning rehired us. Yeah. I think it's really sad. But one thing that really came from that, that did you such a lot of good, I know that at the Ivor Novello Awards, then that's when you... Uh, you'd been nominated for for best video, which Sophie Muller directed. Directed all your videos. We and, were nominated, yeah, yeah. And you won, didn't you? You you won that award. Well, uh, for the Brit the Brit Awards, we won for best video. For uh, Ivor Novello, we won best collection of songs, i.e., best album for Hormonally Yours. Yeah. All right, and um, but that was the moment that you heard that this band was over. Yeah, it was announced there at the awards ceremony. Thanks very much. But uh, you didn't know before. It was a complete surprise. Well, okay. I knew something was going on, but I didn't know that it was going to be announced that day that the band was over. The, the message that her publisher read out was, uh, I wish Marcy well for the future. All's well that it ends well. Um, so I was a bit... <sighs> I was a bit uh, nonplussed really, although I knew it was gonna happen, but it was also a bit of a, a, re a relief. I got back to my table and, and I remember there were a lot of people around. I just, I, I was just crying uncontrollably. I guess I felt humiliated that it happened like that. I mean, even though I, I heard, you know, somebody say, oh, she's going to do it today. She's going to do it today. I'm like, no, I can't believe it. But yeah, that's how it was. That's how it was done. But she but, was going through some, some serious personal issues at the time. Yeah. But I, uh, I still wish I would have known that before. I mean, Shakespeare's sister was the thing that projected you uh, and to the, you know, to the top of the charts and yeah. gave you such a profile. Right. And yeah. it allowed you then to um, release your own album, which you've been writing right. on before. So in a That's sense, right. the disappointment was quickly turned into something positive. So did you, did you feel that or was it was there was it a really hard uh, emotional um, journey from what had happened to becoming yourself and feeling good again? Um. Here's what happened was in my contract with London Records, if Siobhan was always going to take a break after Hormonally Yours to be with her family, right? So I knew I was going to do my solo album next, but I didn't know that the band was going to split up and that's how that was going to happen, right? So while we were on tour, I would find time to write. I was writing, jotting down ideas um, for my album. Uh, which I was really excited about and working with Shakespeare's sister, working with Siobhan, I saw that there was a lot of room, much more room to experiment and how music was changing so much with the times, with technology and everything at the time that there was so much experimentation to be done where I could still be true to who I was and yet try new things, you know, which I did with Shakespeare's sister. And that was really a lot of fun and very rewarding. Um, so I knew that I was going to be doing that and I was preparing. Uh, what was hard was kind of, um, well, getting over the fact that the band was over. Um, it's like, oh, oh shit, okay, 
I'm on my own. Well, I knew I was going to do that anyway, so I'm just going to sink myself wholeheartedly into this. And, and so I did. Um, you know, my first single, I believe, did pretty well. I think it got up to number 11 in the, in the charts in the UK. And in, in, you know, other countries, like in Australia, it got like a, a silver or gold album. And I was thrilled about that. But, you know, it's still, there's a stigma attached to when you're in a group and you split up, people still want you to be a part of that group. They, it's human nature. They don't want to let that go. Even after I've released things of my own, it's always like, oh, when are you going to get back together with Siobhan? You know, or when are you going to do this with so-and-so? So um, I've had that happen a lot. And there is just a stigma attached to it that I don't know, you've either got to come up with something that's so fantastic that they forget all about that, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I haven't done that. Um, uh, it's obvious I haven't, um, but it, it's not for lack of trying, you know. Aren't we all defined by the most successful, yes. biggest selling thing that we've done? We're always yeah. defined by that. You know, I had seven yeah. years on MTV 30 years ago and, yeah. you know, and I'm defined by a period of my life I've long forgotten in a way. <laughs> right, but the thing is, I, I am, it's not to say that I'm not grateful for that, for that notoriety, for that particular thing. I'm very grateful for it. And it launched me, it took me places that I never would have been able to go before. Um, but I think the disappointment of, of that, of my solo album, you know, my, my uh, Jewel album, I was, I was hoping for more and, and uh, you know mm. instead of just being okay well you know on to the next then I did another album Feeler which is like my fa favorite album I've ever done with Mark Saunders I mean I think it still holds up today I listen to it and I go god this is so good <laughs> and I toured I went to Japan twice and and did shows there for MTV speaking of MTV and um traveled around did a little bit with that but yeah I don't know. You just keep trying to, you know, to do as as well as you possibly can. Yeah, but it's about creation, isn't it? It's not always about success. I mean, the thing is, you've had yeah. you've had massive success. You've written yeah. massive songs, and yeah. you've been able to create. You know, what is it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine albums? I've got down here, right. which is you know a phenomenal amount of work. Um, yeah. Were you able to make peace with? Siobhan and with your past with her when you had the reunion? I think somewhat where we were able to be in the same room with each other and to create new music. You know, initially I was contacted by them to, you know, do just do a tour. But then we were having lunch one day and, and my husband was with us and the manager and said, why don't you guys try to write something new instead of just, you know, doing these retro tours and, you know, they're quite viable and, you know, not to demean them or anything, but try to see if you can still write. So we, we did. And the first song we wrote was our, our first single from the EP. It's a really cool song called All the Queen's Horses. And when Siobhan wants something, she will stop at nothing 
to get it. I really admire, she's got such a drive. She's really incredible. She's a, a powerhouse, you know. When she wants something, she'll go to all any lengths to get it. And so she put this together. She had Nick Launay, who's this incredible producer, produced everyone from Iggy Pop to, I mean, you name it. I worked with him with, when he was working with Eric Clapton when I when I joined the second time in, in Montserrat. He was the engineer on that project. He worked with Phil Collins. I mean, he's worked with some really cool punk bands. Um, uh, anyway, so, yeah, I think... We were able to come to an understanding and we, there were still some disagreements. When we initially got together, she presented some things to me saying it was something was a certain way. And, and I was like, well, actually it wasn't, that wasn't at all what happened. Here's what happened. And she did the same for me. So there was so much miscommunication going on, um, partly due to, there were so many people in between us that it made it difficult. But, but like you said initially, we, we came from two different areas, very different. But I mean, she, she taught me a lot about you know, what it meant to be an artist. Uh, I, I really respect her for that. Um, and she invested herself like a million percent into what, what we did and what she did. Well, I just want to end with a real a thank you in a way because I think you have um, contributed so much um, to popular culture. You've been involved in so many uh, different songs that have been in uh, my life. And um, it's an immense contribution. It's, it's, I think it's far more immense than, than a lot of people realize. Um, and I think that's just a, a, it's just a fantastic thing. And I wish you, you know, so much wealth and um, in your creativity uh, in the future. Thank you so much. I mean, I just, I started out doing it because I love, I just love being creative. And like I said, music was always there for me, like, like emotional, emotion, like an emotional support dog, you know? <laughs> That's what music has been to me, really. Um, but I do it because I love it. But it becomes a means to an end because, you know, we all need to eat. We need to make a living. But I still do it because I love it and I love to be creative. And I'm honored that I've worked with all the people that I've worked with. And uh, I, I continue to write and, and be creative. And, and I watched today, I watched the Graham Norton performance of stay oh. and the reunion no but your vocal gymnastics oh my god no you thought so oh yeah my oh my god oh see there you are the perfectionist well i was i was just so nervous you know we did like a few rehearsals and and in the one rehearsal i felt the emotion building up like can i can i swear can i cool yeah i was Go like on. shit we're this is it i can't believe we're actually doing this she's there I'm here. We're on the same stage together after 27 years and we're doing this iconic song. I was very emotional. So when it came time to actually really doing it, when, when they taped it, I mean, I, I was too emotional and my, my voice was, was a little quivery like at the beginning because I was like overwhelmed with emotion. But um, hey, can't change it. That's what came out. <laughs> well, thank you, Marcy Levy, Marcella Detroit, however many other 
personalities are in there like me. <laughs> I'm a woman of many names. <laughs> exactly. Uh, thank you so much for this interview and I wish you re really the best. Thank you. You're so welcome, Steve. It was really a pleasure. Pleasure talking to you. Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Motts. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. A little something something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. <laughs> we're professional unprofessional, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST, 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 ACAST recommends. recommends.